this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. This is going to be one of the most important conversations that we've had on the show to date. While I am amazed at the founders and the investors that have come on the show, this is really an important one. So a few months ago, Cambridge Associates, which is one of the most longstanding advisors and consultants to institutional investors, wrote a paper uh, effectively calling out the crypto asset community and saying that it was time, based off of the maturation and some of the things that they were seeing in terms of institutional platforms being built, like Fidelity and Backed, that it was time to really take a serious look and make some some bets. And uh, we actually today have the pleasure of having Marcos Remus, who is one of the authors of that paper and one of the people there at Cambridge Associates, which really pushed the, uh, the endeavor forward. You'll hear from Marcos uh, about how this all started. And this started about over a year ago. Um, the paper went to the editors, I think, at the end of 2018 and uh, finally got out around uh, Q1 of 19, so a few months ago. And you'll hear all of the research that they did. And again, I want to really make this a clear statement. The fact that Cambridge Associates spent over six, seven, eight months deeply analyzing crypto assets in the entire investment community is so important. Institutional investors, family offices, large pensions, endowments, when they are looking for new avenues of investment, when they're looking for new fund managers, one of the first calls that they make is to Cambridge Associates. And so this was really just an amazing, amazing thing that happened when they wrote that paper and they laid out all the reasons why it's really a good time to start taking a look at this. And so this is going to be an amazing show. Marcos is really impressive, and he knows a lot about what he's talking about. And we go into some deep things in terms of the industry and how to actually start looking at valuation and how to look at managers and manager selection. So this is one that you're going to want to listen to. You're going to want to send it to your friends. And I really think that this is going to be an important show. Again, nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear the show with Marcos. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I am really happy about this one. We have Marcos from Cambridge Associates with us today. If you don't know what Cambridge Associates is, I'd be surprised because a lot of our listeners are family offices and institutional investors. But for those that are in the crypto sphere, they might not be as familiar with Cambridge Associates as, as others. It was an amazing event a few months ago. Marcos and his team over at Cambridge wrote an article, a paper, about crypto assets, and we want to talk more about that today. But if you could, Marcos, um, you know, for the listeners, give us a few minutes of about yourself and about Cambridge Associates. There's a long history there for decades of advising, helping big institutions and family offices. If you could you know, talk to us and give us a little bit of a background about you and about the firm. Well, thank you, David. It's great to be on uh, the podcast with you today. 
Uh, as David said, I'm Marcos. Marcos Veremis is my full name. I'm a managing director at Cambridge Associates, and I work uh, within the endowments and foundations practice here at Cambridge, which means that I uh, work with mostly endowments and foundations on their asset allocation and manager selection, kind of like hands-on portfolio management for, for them. Uh, in addition to that, since 2018, early 2018, I've taken on the role of covering everything related to crypto and blockchain together with uh, my colleagues who wrote the paper with me. And for those of you who don't know Cambridge, we are an uh, institutional investing firm. So it's, Cambridge has been around 45 years now, or more than 45 years, actually. And the firm's core focus is to perform management, uh, investment management uh, of uh, institutional portfolios. And that, as I said, involves asset allocation and then also manager selection. And I'd say that over 70% of, uh, of the clients we work with, we, we are hands-on in, in the work we do with them. Think of it uh, as an outsourced investment office for a large institution. Yeah, I would have to say I put Cambridge in the same type of vein. So when you think about soda, you think about Coke and Pepsi. When you think about, you know, kind of consultants and advisors and people that can really help you with your investment processes, I think of Cambridge Associates. There's a few others out there, but the first is Cambridge Associates. And so they are, you know, in my opinion, the gold standard. And so it's, you know, as I said, it's a real joy to have you on the show today. Um and so I'd love to kind of delve in into some of the work that you've been doing on digital assets and crypto. Um, I'm curious, before we get into some of the deeper questions about the paper that you guys wrote, what was the impetus for that? What was the catalyst? Was that from um, some of your clients? Was that something that came from a lot of uh, kind of inbound uh, what made you? What made you do before we get into the paper? What made you decide to actually take on that task? Because it was a very lengthy analysis. Yeah, so it was both actually. It was both client interest and what we were seeing on the ground. So since the beginning of our history, we've been looking out for emerging spaces. Venture capital was one such space back in the seventies, eighties. It was an emerging space back then, and. We looked at venture capital and developed expertise then. So in a similar fashion, uh, we've been looking out for emerging spaces today. And uh, also emerging managers across asset classes. And uh, to this end, we're generally encouraged in the organization to bring ideas to the table and try to work across the practice areas where things don't exactly fit in into any area. So... Crypto has been an area which I've been leading together with Alex Devenu and Mike Armstrong, co-authors of our paper, and together, though, with a critical help of our venture research team and also a number of hedge fund directors. So it's a joint effort. And the catalyst for that was uh, we saw this space coming from both sides of the world, from both the venture side and the hedge fund side. So a number of our investment managers, particularly on the venture side, uh, had started um, making investments in crypto. Now, personally, what um, made me want to do this uh, is there are two reasons for that. So the first is that you know, I've had a 12-year career where I've uh, focused on hedge funds mostly, but I've also done work in private investments. 
And in my 12-year career, I'd never witnessed a situation in which one group of very smart people were quickly dismissing a space altogether completely, and another group of very smart people, equally smart people, were saying that this had really transformational potential. So that was intriguing immediately. I'd never seen such a situation. And I'd say the first group were mostly equity, bond, and hedge fund managers, not always, but mostly. And the second group were mostly venture capitalists. Again, not, not always, but mostly. And, and it was um, everything they said. Uh, okay, they wrote letters that we're privy to and they, they don't share. But in general, everything they said is out there in the public record. So anyone could read their opinions if they were willing to dedicate the time. So with this catalyst, I, I delved into reading about the space uh, more deeply I began with a book called Mastering Bitcoin. Do, do you know this book, David? Yes, of course. So I've read many books in crypto, but I'd say Mastering Bitcoin is, for me, the most important book I've read by far. And the reason is that even though it's dedicated to Bitcoin and how the Bitcoin blockchain works, it really goes deep. It's for programmers mostly, but people can skip the code and and take the time to read it. it. You need to be concentrated and focus on it, but you really learn how the Bitcoin blockchain works. And from there, you can really start getting a deep understanding of um, other blockchains like Ethereum and then the, more, the newer ones. So it, it was transformative. For me, it was really important having read this book. And after that, I started reading plenty of the Medium articles out there, which were mostly by venture capitalists and tech entrepreneurs. And after doing all this work, I, I personally uh, saw that I was inclined to side with a second group of smart people in the space that I mentioned, the venture guys. I have to give you credit first and foremost, the amount of work that you probably did. I think a lot of people don't recognize that you probably spent in the magnitude of months, right? Many months. I mean, uh, it, it took me, I'm, I'm still reading and learning because there's so much to learn uh, constantly, probably on a daily basis. But it took me at least four to five months to be in a position to start understanding what is going on, in my opinion. So, and then, you know, after a year, I was at a much better level, but, but it took a lot of time. And this was mostly, as I said, from, from medium articles. And you might ask me, why did I decide to, to kind of think that the second group, the venture group of uh, smart people were the ones to look for? And so there are two reasons for that. So the first is that despite the implications with regards to money in crypto, this is a really early stage technology. That's what it is. It's a computer early technology. It's an early stage technology. And on top of that, there's game theory and cryptography and so on. But it's deeply technical. It, it also involves the development of a new tool, that, that of digital scarcity or internet native assets, if you will, which if you think about it, uh, such a tool could potentially open up the design space for web services uh, in, in a broad sense. So, A, it's, it's in the venture domain, right? It's, it's in the venture and tech domain. The second reason that I sided with the venture capitalists in this debate is that 
by reading articles by the two groups, I saw that the second group had was writing significantly wider and deeper um, uh, articles than the first group. So when reading articles, and I'm sure, David, you've seen this yourself, probably, but when reading articles by the people who dismiss the space, the arguments are really well known. There are five or six of them. And uh, you've read one article, you've read them all, right? <laughs> so it's crypto assets are worthless. All of them are worthless. And people just cut and paste the code and create new worthless currencies, mm-hmm. which is the which is which actually the case on many occasions, but not for the field as a whole. But when reading articles by the second group, I, I saw completely new perspectives and ideas that covered many industries. And after doing this work, it was an easy call for me to say that, uh, you know, we really need to take a deep dive here. And the research team and other departments here at CA immediately agreed with this. So back in early 2018, we, we said uh, somebody needs to covered formally and we started covering the space formally. So that's a long wind, uh, winded answer, but I thought I'd give you kind of the full context here because I think it's important. I love it. I have to, you know, I, I really just have to make a mark here. The importance that Cambridge Associates decided to do this in 2018 is a take uh, effectively a tectonic shift. It is a massive catalyst. It is something that a lot of people, and I, as you know, Marcos, I was writing about this and I was singing your laurels because it's such an important thing that you guys did. And I, I congratulate you for the undertaking. Um, so for people that want to take a look for that paper, it is crypto assets delve into the unknown. Um, and so I definitely recommend people taking a look at that paper. There's a lot of great work in there. So digging into the paper, um, a quote, although the crypto industry remains in its infancy, we think institutional investors should begin exploring it. Hard stop, amazing quote. Based on what you guys have been able to take a look at for the past year, year and a half, and the analysis, a lot of people keep on trying to make corollaries to more of the traditional markets. And a lot of people also try to make corollaries to the internet growth. Um, and a lot of people have said, well, we're in the 93, 94 period of the internet. Do you think that's a correct corollary? Um, and what other alternative markets and technology, you know, kind of growth cycles that you've seen could be better suited if that's not? Yeah, uh, I think there are strong similarities between crypto and the internet. And, and there are also significant differences. But uh, yeah, I do think the best way to frame the potential importance of crypto is to point to the web. I think it's the best parallelism you can make. Of course, you can go back to other technological shifts like cars, you know, some people talk about the Ford and cars and how um, back in the day people were saying these, these, these machines are never going to replace horses. But I'd say the most relevant uh, um, comparison is with the internet and I'll elaborate. But as I said, there are important differences too and it's what Mark Twain said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself but it often rhymes. It feels like a situation like that. So, so what are the similarities? Let's start with the similarities, and then I'll, I'll go to the differences. Uh, the similarities are, look at the phenomena first, and then I'm going to mention the essence of it. But look at the phenomena first. You know, you have a Wild West environment, like in the early 90s, where techies, and quite often bad actors, are, were experimenting in, in the technology. There was a little clarity on where this whole movement was heading. 
there was little clarity or what business models would evolve, how they would evolve, how they would be monetized. And on top of that, user experience was, was awful. You know, there were many technical problems. I'm sure you've read or heard of the Newsweek article back in 2015. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, 1995. Sorry, not 2015, 1995. The, w the web will not be Nirvana. And um, I think it's a great read because if you take the perspective of the times, it made a lot of sense what they were writing. You know, the writer says that my shopping mall makes many times more uh, revenue than the web does as a whole and other such comments, which were really, they, they were true. So I think... Back then, you you couldn't really see that easily where this whole thing would go. Uh, but despite all these issues, you know, capital and smart capital as well flooded into the space. You had a lot of venture capital enter the space. A lot of people began believing that the web could transform the way we uh, create and share information and, and ultimately how business works, too was early, but uh, but we now all know it happened. So in a sense, it was easier to see the end game for the web back then, but very hard to see how we would get there. And that's kind of similar to crypto. Since I mentioned these phenomena, I think I highly suggest reading a book called the, How the Internet Happened uh, from Netscape to the iPhone. I think you'll really get um, the perspective of, of the times by reading it and how it all evolved i agree and there's also i believe that same author did a, a role of podcasts for many many years that you can still check out and it goes through all of those stories in audio format and then obviously he also wrote that book uh it is a fantastic book i completely agree with you and it is so important to have that perspective on the early days of the internet and it addressed, you know, obviously issues with scaling and with a lot of the things that we're dealing with right now in terms of blockchain and within crypto. Um, you know, kind of moving into, you know, the discussions that you may be having with family offices and other institutional investors. I get this question a lot too, coming from, you know, previously from the family office world. A lot of the first questions are, how do I do this? It was a few years ago, it was, why would I want to do this in terms of investing in this space? And then it became, how do I do this? And so issues abound about custody and taxation, but that's more in the kind of, uh, kind of the nitty gritty, but more about, you know, where do I actually put my money? Do I go to hedge funds? Do I go to VCs? Do I try to do direct investments? As you know, family offices also have been doing more and more direct investments over the last, you know, four or five years. So in terms of, you know, kind of the best solutions right now, um, you know, what are you, you know, kind of, you know, I know you wrote about this in the, in the paper, what is the landscape right now? Talk to us about the fund landscape. Talk to us about, you know, kind of how a family office could make direct investments because the valuation schema is still being kind of written out as we talk live right now. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, great. I mean, we, we discussed this in our paper, as you say, we, we outlined three approaches, basically, uh, that one could take uh, investing in the space. There's There are hedge funds out there, and I'll elaborate on each one of these. There are venture funds out there, and then there you could do direct investments or, or, or index funds as well. And now, we have been meeting with a lot of managers, so I think we've met 
with over 40, maybe 50 or more at this point, uh, across the landscape here trying to figure out what's best. First, let me start by saying that it's hard. I mean, it's like, it, it's not similar to trying to research a hedge fund or a venture fund, which uh, the frameworks around how to do due diligence are really standard. So we need to develop these frameworks as we go. So it's really challenging. Uh, I'd say the preferred approach for us so far has been the venture uh, approach, but uh, but it has issues as well. So let me start with hedge funds, okay? So hedge, hedge funds, there are plenty out there. They're, they are uh, actively managing um, a portfolio of uh, liquid crypto assets from Bitcoin all the way to others like EOS and even shorts because there is a short market for crypto as well at this point. And they're trying to add value by doing fundamental analysis, either doing fundamental analysis on the on a protocol level and taking a venture capital long-term perspective on, on these crypto assets and or trading because there are a lot of inefficiencies in this, in this market. The, there are a couple of issues with, with a hedge fund structure, I think, for investors, institutional investors. You know, the first is that I think a lot of these guys have embedded uh, asset liability mismatches. And what I mean by that is, you know, they're in an environment like 2018, liquidity completely disappeared and they were offering offering like quarterly liquidity. And, uh, you know, there was a run on the bank and uh, not only did their portfolio go down, but their assets disappeared and they shut down. So there's a lot of business risk in this model if, you, if it's not constructed carefully. The other is the high watermark that's charged annually, uh, which is not something that personally I, th I think is ideal. And I'll give you another example here. So take 2017, right? I mean, everything went up. It was a bubble. And if you had an 100 million fund, you'd go to, let's say, by the end of the year, 300 million and you get an incentive fee of $60 million, right? For doing what? And then the next year, your portfolio fell back to 100. The principal still, the, the, the owners of the fund still made, you know, 60 million. They could just pack and leave and enjoy the rest of their life. So the alignment of incentives is a little off here in a, such a volatile space. So these are the problems. Now, the VC structure, the VC structure has the following benefits. It's, it's a long-term structure, and I think this is a long-term game, 100%. This is a 10-plus-year game. If you want to be in this, you've got to have a 10-year perspective. So VC structure has that time horizon. You know, they, they can draw capital whenever they, they think it makes sense. So more recently, I was looking at a couple of venture funds and they actually drew substantial amounts of capital to invest right after the crash, which is the perfect time. Their business is more stable because they know what their you know, fees are going to be for the uh, foreseeable future. And finally, from the investor's perspective, you know, the, the incentive fees paid at the end of it all when all is said and done rather than annually. So, so, it's, so it's a better structure now. There are some issues with it as well. So the issues with it are that 
in many cases, when people invest in venture structures, they're investing only in the equity of companies related to the blockchain and crypto space. And these tend to be, as you know, David, um, wallets, you know, exchanges, data analytics, all the infrastructure around this space. The problem with that approach, in my view, is that if a venture fund excludes the liquid crypto assets, investors don't get exposure to them, and they should. And you might ask me, you know, why they should. They should because... Unlike the early days of the internet, in, in, in this new wave, we have, uh, before we had, you know, we had information protocols, we had uh, information exchange protocols, we had TCP IP, we had, you know, SMTP, all of these, the foundational layers of the internet. Now we have value, internet native value protocols. And for the first time, we, investors can actually own a piece of these protocols. That was not possible in, in the internet. So why is that important? It's important because we don't know where the value will accrue eventually and how it will accrue. So in, in, so far, it's accrued to the, mostly to the protocols like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on. But somebody needs to give a strong rationale as to why these should be excluded other than that they're volatile. Because, yeah, they have liquidity. They're still early stage technologies, though, and they could accrue a lot of the value, not all of them, a handful of them. But excluding them altogether, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem with venture funds is that a lot of them don't own liquid crypto assets. There's some that own everything, including equity and liquid crypto assets. And one could argue there, you know, that the, the, the lockups are are just too long for the liquidity that they offer. So, so I mean, there's a case to be made for maybe hybrid structures as well. Mm -hmm. We've seen some come into the market. But given what we have today, I'd, I'd favor VC with crypto asset exposure. And then if you go down to the direct route, um, here's the thing with a direct route. Uh, a couple of things. Let's uh, well, let's take Bitcoin, right? Where anybody can buy Bitcoin or Ethereum. Like anybody can open up a Coinbase account and buy Bitcoin or Ethereum. They don't need a manager to charge them two percent and twenty percent incentive fee. So, say somebody, say an institutional investor says, you know, we, we we're going to get our liquid exposure by buying Bitcoin and Ethereum and a couple of others on Coinbase. That's not a bad idea in theory, but are they going to be able to manage it is my biggest concern. And Bitcoin could be a protocol that accrues a lot of value, but uh, but that could change, right? I mean, you could have another protocol displacing Bitcoin down the road. And are people that are holding these assets directly able to manage them? Do they have the understanding? Are they in the flow? Or should they delegate this to, to a manager they like despite the fees? Does that make sense? Yeah, we, you know, I say this and we say this also that to be in digital assets and crypto, it is a 24-7, 365 process. 
It is not something that you can just kind of set it and forget it. As we saw, obviously, in the middle of December of 2018, Bitcoin was hovering around 3,000, 3,100, where some people said that that was the kind of the floor. And as of yesterday, for about five minutes, Bitcoin hit 9,000. So that's a 3x return over a number of, of, of months. Um, and, you know, obviously with with Bitcoin's rise, it, it always kind of brings other alternatives, uh, altcoins as they're called, and, you know, brings them up. And we've seen Ethereum rally recently, too. And, you know, there's lots of movement. There's lots of things that are happening behind the scenes, to your point. Um, there are, you know, obviously conversations regarding scaling and there's conversations around layer two solutions. And there's lots of things that are happening concurrently every single day that are affecting these things. And one of the things I was interested in, and I'm not sure if you guys have thought about this, but valuation, you know, from a family office perspective, when you were looking at, you know, when investors look at early stage investments, they usually come up with some sort of a DCF model. Um, And so we were, you were alluding to it kind of where the value is captured, you know, is still something that is evolving. But in terms of valuation, have you guys, you know, kind of when you've looked at the marketplace and you've looked at the analysis and you've probably read Chris Berninskin, you've looked at MV equals PQ and you've probably seen, is there any valuation metric that you feel that you've seen thus far that kind of, you know, feels right? Or is it something that you guys are currently monitoring to see kind of how that evolves too? The answer is, uh, the short answer is monitoring to see how it evolves, but I have some thoughts around this. Uh, so you alluded to early stage tech, uh, right? So take a, take a pre-seed or seed stage startup. Um, honestly, I don't think you can value it with discounted cash flows. I think <laughs> I think it's too early to do that. So the market kind of creates a valuation metric around that, and from there you you can make some projections, but it's it's really it's really an art rather than a science. So there's a bit of that with crypto as well. But with that said, though, there, there are potential models for crypto. I mean, they're different. As you know, Dave, there are different types of crypto assets, right? So uh, let's take two examples. Uh, let's take Bitcoin, which um, nobody knows how to value exactly. And then let's take a work token, for example, um, like um, RFP, for example, or others. And for Bitcoin, I think the the, usual, the the way people try to create a you know a target price, um, of course, there are target prices that are short term that I you know I don't pay attention to. But one can say Bitcoin has a hundred billion um, or a little more market cap, and that um, if it does become a store of value for emerging markets and millennials, and if it does solve its scalability problems and becomes potentially uh, a medium of exchange as well, and, uh, you know, you can you can project the addressable market like you would do for a startup and figure out a price, which could range from zero to a million dollars. So it, I'm not sure how helpful it is. But if you do believe that it will win kind of one of the use cases for these value protocols, you you can easily project that the price is much higher than it is today. Of course, it could go to zero. Some somebody else could replace it. That's Bitcoin, so it's a bit more vague. With a with a work token, I think it's 
it's much easier. It's like a discounted cash flow analysis. So you look at what the suppliers are going to be earning uh, in, in terms of fees, and you can run a discounted cash flow a- analysis and try to estimate a value there. And, you know, work tokens are kind of like taxi medallions, and taxi medallions, you can value them with a, with a discounted cash flow level of analysis. But to answer your questions, these are all vague and evolving still. And I think there's more work to do on it. But, you know, there's been, as you mentioned, Chris Berninsky and others have done really good work to set set the foundations for it. Right. Yeah, it is a moving target and it's something that is evolving every single day. You know, we've created models. Other people are starting to create models. It, it's something that is just an, an evolution. And it's, it's interesting to be at the ground floor of that uh, because we talk about this, you know, over at ARCA that PE, you know, when you think of Graham and Dodd, you know, <laughs> you know, PE took over a hundred years and obviously it's been validated now as a primary metric. Um, but, you know, there was a hundred years of data that went into that. And, you know, Bitcoin is the only one that we have right now that has 10 years of data. The other ones like Ethereum and the other altcoins have only been around for a few years. And just the, the KPIs, the data is just not rich enough to actually have, you know, full valuation models yet, but obviously people are working on them daily. Um, I'm curious, you know, after the report that you guys wrote, um, what's been the, you know, what's been the inbound? Are you getting more questions? Are people, are family offices and institutional investors asking you more? Are they, you know, is the price of Bitcoin obviously been something that, you know, people have been watching? Is that kind of drawing more people into the conversation? What happened after the report? Yeah, no, great question. So, yes, the answer is that there's been many more questions, I, sh- I think, and uh, inquiries about um, about the space. Um, I think if I, if I look a year back, I think the vast majority of institutional investors dismissed the space and they, they viewed it as kind of pure speculation. And there, there was an element of truth to that with the ICO bubble. But um, I think a year later, not just because of the Cambridge paper, but because you've seen, you know, very prominent funds entering the space, um, many, many uh, entrepreneurs and um, high quality uh, individuals entering the space. Uh, also, uh, I think people are starting to think that there's much more to this than speculation. And there's potentially some very interesting things that are building up in this space. It's still very risky, still nascent, but um, but I think there's much more interest in at least understanding what it involves. And in terms of actual in- investments into the space, I can't really comment, but I think, um, I think they're increasing in the institutional world. Uh, I can't comment, I mean, with specifics, but I, I think they are increasing. They're still very, very small, any allocations that are being made. So say, for example, uh, an endowment decides to invest in the space, they won't put 5% of their portfolio in it, but they might put, you know, 50 basis points in it uh, or 30 basis points in it uh, to test the waters and understand it better. And potentially, you know, if it, if it does evolve, potentially allocate more. Uh, so the, the, the answer is it, it's, it's definitely helped, um, I think, in increasing interest. Uh, that's my experience so far with it. Yeah, we have to crawl before we 
run and then we have to you know learn how to run before we run a marathon so it's it's a slow process and one that obviously i appreciate you appreciate and so i'm curious another thing that you wrote in the the paper was despite the flurry of activity the regulatory environment has been slow to develop now we've seen some things recently over the last few days with this whole kin and kick thing um and we've seen people obviously trying to raise money to support them from a regulatory standpoint so we can reevaluate and maybe come up with a new Howey test. In your analysis on the industry, do you see the regulatory landscape changing um, since you wrote the paper, and what do you think is happening? Not much is the answer, because we finished the paper around November, December, and then we took it to the editing process, you know, January, February. We released it, I think, sometime in mid-Feb that it was released. So um, I think the same, or most most of the same issues um still exist with respect to regulatory uncertainty. Uh, the kick situation is very interesting, and I think uh, something for industry participants to follow pretty closely how it's going to uh, evolve and end, because one of the big issues with regulatory uncertainty, in my view, is the what exactly is the Howey test? You know, how does it apply? Um, what are the specific criteria that... Um, uh, would would uh, classify a, a token or crypto asset uh, to be a security. These things are still pretty unclear, and you know it, it creates uncertainty. Um, one way it creates uncertainty is, for example, an exchange might not list some of these crypto assets if if there's no clarity as to whether they're um, securities or not, and that would hurt liquidity. Then project founders would potentially move their offering to Binance, for example, or somewhere outside the United States. So I think there needs to be more clarity on this. And I'm not saying that the regulators are not trying. It's really hard. You know, this is a completely new technology. And it's very hard to understand. And it's very hard to, I feel, put it, um, fit it into the in, in, into a framework, a regulatory framework that um, is not, um, it's, it's, it's part, it is a path regulatory framework, right? So it takes time and I think it will take time. Um, there, there are other issues with, uh, uh, regulatory uncertainty. I mean, the, uh, I guess the Bitcoin ETF is one case where it's unclear whether and when it might be launched. That would potentially be a good thing because it would be a regulated vehicle, for retail investors to to invest in rather than or other investors to invest in other than kind of put their money uh, with bad actors and others. Uh, so to make a long story short, I think we haven't moved that far since um, since we wrote the paper. Uh, the kick situation could potentially bring um, kind of some more clarity as to how the Howey test would be applied. So looking forward to it. So I want to backtrack for a second. So we talked about fun landscape and we talked about, you know, active management. You talked obviously about more of a venture capital approach with some liquidity and it, you know, and then you talked about institutions that could potentially just buy some Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin and call it a day. But obviously, you know, having that kind of active management process is really important. And then we just talked about the Bitcoin ETF. Is it your 
opinion, either as a firm or just from your analysis, and this is not a gotcha or to put you on the spot, but I'm just curious if you can opine on this. Do you think, as of today, where we are in the maturation cycle of digital assets, that we is it really the time to have a passive, more of a passive instrument, or do we still really need that active management? It's a great question, um, and you made a very good point here. I said on the one hand that um, uh, most people shouldn't just hold Bitcoin, and then on the other hand, talking about a Bitcoin ETF. I'd say that there is a case to make uh, to be made for passive exposure, but in my opinion, it would be more of an index type of exposure because the index type of exposure rebalances. And so the investor can just sit back and relax and let the index rebalance the exposures, if you see what I mean, mm-hmm. while if they bet on one crypto asset, uh, then they would need to monitor it and do the homework. And I don't think they have the bandwidth or capacity to do that in most cases. So I think there's a place for passive exposure. Uh, in my view, it's more an index type exposure. Uh-huh. And if if certain index funds that are low cost and uh, offer good custody and so on appear, and even an ETF down the road, that, that could be quite interesting for somebody to get exposure to the liquid crypto assets and just leave it for the next 10 years. And so you brought up custody. Um, and so one of the last questions that I wanted to talk to you about was the role that institutional grade solutions like Fidelity's digital asset service and backed. Um, obviously, Fidelity has gone live. Backed is still waiting to kind of work through the regulatory landscape. Um, we've had um, you know TD Ameritrade with RSX, and we've had some other you know, and other institutional platforms come online. What do you think that, you know, what role do you think those solutions have in terms of the investor's mind today versus a year ago? I think they're very important. And I mentioned before the uh, the similarity between um, the web and, and crypto and blockchain, which is the exchange of information, the decentralized exchange and creation of information versus the decentralized uh, creation and exchange of value, which is blockchain crypto. And I think there's also a difference between the two, which is that in the case of value exchange, trust is very important. It's even more important than it is with respect to the exchange of information. So therefore, anything that can increase trust in the in the system, so any institutional solution, any brand name that tries to tackle problems and, and tries to protect investors, um, you know, from a custody perspective and uh, and other ways, only helps to increase trust in this in this whole new space and um, and also you know that that should result down the road in more adoption. So, in my view, they're they're very important developments for the institutional investor mindset. Before we get into the last, and this is the usual getting to know Marcos and our guests a little bit more, and I'll ask you about what you're reading and what you're listening to. I just have one last question um, that we didn't necessarily discuss before, but because you're at the forefront and because you're you know right on the, the field, if you will, and talking to a lot of the institutions out there, do you still hear the narrative, I like blockchain, but I don't like Bitcoin? Yeah, quite often. And um uh... It's, it, it's something that um, I think personally 
and some of my colleagues disagree, but personally, I think it's a flawed way of looking at this. Uh, I think that the, the the blockchain technology together that that enables the, the creation of digital scarcity and crypto assets allows for the development of these decentralized types of networks. Um, and that's where most of the interesting opportunities, in my view, are going to be. Uh, if you if you say I just like blockchain technology, I mean, what are you exactly referring to? Are you referring to a, a private blockchain, which is effectively a database? Um, I don't see much upside there. I mean, there there's going to be probably some value accrual there, but I don't see much upside there. I do think though that the confusion stems from the and partially from the volatility of crypto assets, which scares people off. And one uh, example I make sometimes when people um, ask this question is, I give them the following example, uh, and I say, okay, so, and I'm not endorsing any or have any opinion of these protocols, I'm just giving an example. So there, there are a number of smart contract um, blockchains, right? Uh, there's Ethereum, which has launched. Everybody knows Ethereum. It has a lot of volatility, more than Bitcoin. But there are also some others that are have been equity funded at this point, and they haven't launched. So in a number of these venture portfolios, you'll find you know some of these pre-launched smart contract platforms that effectively try to become the next Ethereum when they launch. And so one, one thing I say to people is that, so so you're basically more comfortable investing in a pre-launch um, smart contract platform because there's no volatility at present rather than Ethereum, which is arguably, you know, you know, forward in, in its development and it's kind of a more mature smart uh, contract platform. And so... You're thinking that you're, you're, you're avoiding risk by, by not taking the volatility, but in fact, you're investing in a riskier asset by not taking the volatility. Does, does that make sense? That does make sense. You know, one of the things I talk to them about when I hear this time and time again, I've heard this for years, I actually talk about the security features. So on a private blockchain versus a public blockchain, on a, on a public blockchain, everyone has the ledger, it is distributed you try to take down that network on a 51% attack, it's not going to be easy, especially with something like Bitcoin or Ethereum. We've seen it, but it's not easy. Um, you know, with a private blockchain, it's basically 10 or 12 or 15 kind of permissioned validators, and they all share the ledger. So if you get to one, you only have a few more to get to. And so it's a, kind of the law of large numbers. And so I always talk about from the security features of private versus public blockchains. Yes, there's there's security features in, in private blockchains that keep you know kind of trade secrets out from the open. And I know that's why corporations are using them more and more these days. But I agree with you, the innovation and really the unlocked value is in, in, the, in the public blockchains. And so getting to the end and getting to the top of the hour, as I said, we like to get to know our guests from a little bit more of a personal standpoint. And there are two inputs that we all put into our brain, hopefully, on a day-in-day -day basis if you get time. 
Uh, one of them is books and what you're reading. And you obviously alluded to Andreas's book, Mastering Bitcoin. Shout out to Andreas. He has to come on the show yet. Um, and in terms of music, so I'd love to hear kind of what you've been reading lately um, and what music you listen to while you're traveling. Um, I know you just had a good amount of travel, so I imagine you were listening to lots of music. So I'd love to hear about that. Well, I love both dearly. So I spend a lot of time reading books uh, and listening to music. I I, tr I try to be disciplined when reading books. I, I read about one or two a month at this point. I wish I could read more. And um, I pick the books before I read them. You know, I read the reviews. I, I look at, you know, what Bill Gates, for example, recommends, things like that. But um, I've read some really great books the past, um, the past year. Um, I mentioned why the Internet happened. It's a must-read, in my opinion. Uh, why the internet happened from Netscape to the iPhone. It's relevant to crypto as well. I would say another one relevant to crypto that I, I really liked, um, at least most of it, it was at times a little repetitive, but I think uh, it had great insights, it was the uh, book called Zucked about Facebook and um, not just Facebook, but also Google and Twitter and the big internet platforms. And... I had my aha moment there that we, we really are all living in filter bubbles the way these, these algorithms work and, um, and other. So it was a great book. Um, but outside of crypto, unrelated to crypto, I'd say, you know, a really great book that I read uh, recently was Bill, Bill Browder's Red Notice, which is about the experiences of uh, a hedge fund manager in Russia during the privatization period. It, it reads like a um, detective um, novel. I mean, it's amazing. And then Hillbilly Elegy, another great book about uh, the experiences of J.D. Vance, the author in white working class America in the Midwest, uh, talking about filter bubbles. People should, should be reading things that are outside of where they live and where they are. And then finally, a really great, great book that I had on my desk for a while. One of my colleagues gave it to me that I just finished. And I also think it's a must read. It's um, Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets. Oh, yeah. She was a professional poker player and does a, a terrific job kind of making you understand the biases you um, you you've developed and, and the biases in your thinking. So mm. it's great. I am just starting now, that book. Did you read it? I'm just starting it this week. I think I think it has, and it has some great examples. Um, you, you know, you I, I thought it's a great book. We once you read it, I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, don't ruin it for me. <laughs> In terms of music, um, I I used to listen to music much more. I like I really like the old stuff. Uh, I like Led Zeppelin, for example, one of my favorite bands. Uh, they're old. Um, or at least for the millennial generation, they're very old. The, I like The Cure a lot from the UK. One of my favorite albums is um, Rebellion by Arcade Fire, Radiohead, Jack White. And although this is not a promotional interview, my brother, Leon of Athens, which is, um, he's been touring in the US and, um, and you know, I'm obviously a big fan of his. He's, uh, he was at South by Southwest and a couple of other festivals. Nice. That is yeah. 
So, yeah. so aside from work, Marcos has probably, you know, me and him are going to start a book club and also uh, sharing our music files because very, very good stuff on that. Um, and so lastly, the other thing I like to do for guests is if there is a place you want to point people that are listening to learn more about Cambridge or more obviously to read the paper, you can obviously let people know where to go there. And that's it. Yeah, no, that's great. So if you go to uh, www.cambridgeassociates.com, you'll see um, a lot of information there. The paper has been uh, posted publicly. It's called Crypto Assets Venture into the Unknown. You'll, you'll find it there, but you'll also find many other great pieces. I think that the research that, that we do is, is um, one of the strongest things about this firm. I mean, it, it's really deep research, and um, a lot of it is available publicly, so people should go there and, and, and read uh, on multiple topics. I agree. So this was an amazing conversation with Marcos Ramos from Cambridge Associates. Please, please read that paper. I know it was a endeavor on your part to actually do it. It's a great paper. It's a really important paper. The time and energy that you all have spent to understand this space and educate institutional investors is something that we all need to really thank you for because I know it was you were one of the first, and it's always hard being that that way. So please check out the paper. Reach out to Marcos. Read everything that you can from Cambridge. We'll have you on again in a few months to check in. Again, this is Marcos Arimas from Cambridge Associates. Thanks for joining us on Baselayer. Take care. Thank you. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.